0: Romans chapter eight, verses one through four, hear God's word. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirits. Then drop down to verses 14, and we'll read through verse 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and of children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And then finally, our final reading this morning is from verses 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He searches hearts. Know, he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This is ends our reading of the Holy, Inerrant, and Infallible Word of God. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the Word of our God stand forever. You can be seated. Before I get started, I just want to say thank you so much. Um, I, I received more encouragements and words of affirmation and prayers this week um, following our financial update from some of the challenges that we're facing as a church. And I, in fact, I received so much encouragement, I'm just going to go ahead and do a financial report every single week. Um, <laughs> I certainly have never received that much positive feedback from any of my sermons. Um <laughs> We are looking at the Holy Spirit, and we've been looking at the Holy Spirit for about four or five weeks now. We began by looking at simply an introduction to the person and work of the Holy Spirit from John, and then we looked in particular at the work of the Holy Spirit who gives us new birth. The Holy Spirit is the one who precedes the work, it uh, moves through the gospel to bring life. We don't do anything to bring, give us life and to bring life. The Spirit gives us life, and we looked at that from John chapter 3. And then we looked at the relationship between Jesus and the Spirit and how the Spirit empowers Jesus' ministry and then shines a light on Jesus so that we can see Jesus as we ought. Then... We looked at Acts chapter 2 two weeks ago and we looked at the baptism of the Holy Spirit, at this promise of the Holy Spirit who had been promised throughout the Old Testament that there is this power coming and he is gonna come and he's gonna dwell with you, something new and radical that is going on in the new covenant. Where in the old covenant, in the Old Testament, the Spirit didn't reside permanently inside people, but in the new covenant, what we have is the Spirit come and he baptizes us and fills us and lives inside of us. And that does a radical change so that it gives us a new community and a new life and a new mission. And so those are the three things we're actually walking through as we end this series. Last week, Andy looked and talked to us about the, the new community that the Holy Spirit creates. And this morning and then next week, I'm going to be looking at the new life that the Holy Spirit creates and forms in us. And that is what Romans 8 is about Romans 8 is a crown jewel of Paul's theology in which the Holy Spirit comes and takes what Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross, and he comes and he applies that work to our hearts so that we experience the love of God. And Romans 8 is all about assurance. Romans 8 is all about our assurance in Christ Jesus, and that assurance is applied to us by the Holy Spirit. It's a very clear outline throughout Romans 8. 1 through 4 is how we have no condemnation. He releases us from the power of sin, and 5 through 13, where he gives us a new mind to think rightly. And then we see we are called sons. We have a new relationship with God in verses 14 through 17. And verses 18 through 25 and through 26 and 27, we see that in spite of our suffering, the Spirit comes to help us in our weaknesses, and that he works all things for our good. And then finally it ends in Romans, at the end of Romans chapter 8, with this benediction, this great call, that because of all these things, you have assurance that the love of God will never be taken from you. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ given to us in Romans 8, given to us in clear and stark theological terms in all of its beauty and glory and treasure. But the Holy Spirit, if you look through Romans 8, is involved in every single aspect. In fact, the good news is Of this gospel, when it comes into our life, the gospel of the Holy Spirit is that God has come to dwell with us and to apply all of God's love, all of God's work, all of Christ's salvation to our hearts and lives. And when that happens, what happens to your life? It is turned upside down. You got, as said at the very beginning this morning, at the beginning of our worship order, that when the Holy Spirit enters into our life, he does not come to do a fixer or project. He has not come to change some drywall and to put a new fresh coat of paint upon your life. He has come to break it down to the very studs, to give you a new house, to build a new life I'm going to use this idea in this image. We're going to come back to it very strongly next week as we're going to focus on this image. But when the new life of the Holy Spirit enters our life, there is a current, there is a power, there is a wind that blows upon your life. And it brings new life. And so when the Holy Spirit moves in, that's what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is in Acts chapter 2. When the Holy Spirit moves in and takes up residence in your life, he begins to make some noise to bring about new life. Like when you particularly, if you have moved in with somebody, perhaps while you're in college and you have a new roommate, and you're trying to start to get to know who this person is, and maybe they're like one of those people who are juicers, and you wake up one morning and you hear a kind of this, this radical rattling sound out in the kitchen, you're going, What? What is he doing? Who is, what is this new resident doing in my life and in my house? For those of you that bring a new resident home from the hospital, this little eight-pound thing that wakes you up five times through the night, you're going, what is this child doing? And so we ask that question about the Spirit. The Spirit does something radical in your life, and he has come in as the new roommate in your life, and he's coming to give you new life. So what is he doing? Well, three things. And each of those three sections I read, we want to look, I want to look at each of them. Three things in particular that I want to look at this morning is what the Holy Spirit is doing to give you new life. The first is found in verses 1 through 4. The first is the Spirit is freeing you, is freeing you. We see this great statement in chapter, verse 1 of chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But then what does it say in verse 2? For the law of the Spirit has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Verse 1 is this fabulous declaration. It is your justification that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That Jesus has taken the wrath that you deserved. He has given you his righteousness. But verse 2 is a description of now your sanctified life. For the law of the Spirit in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Let me just make three observations about what this means. First, what does it mean for they have to be set free from the law of sin and death? Or what does that even refer to, the law of sin and death? There is a confusion as people read Paul. And sometimes I wonder, I kind of want to ask God, God, why did you, you helped Paul, write. Why well, I don't understand why there's, Paul, there's so much confusion about this word law as Paul uses it. Some people have a very negative view of law because we see here that Paul says there's the law of sin and death. And what does that refer to? Now, the law can refer to two things. First, Paul often refers to the law as being the Mosaic law, the moral code, the things that we are supposed to live by. The Ten Commandments, for example, But he also, when Paul talks about the law, as in in this case, about the law of sin and death, he's referring to the law as a ruling authority, a directing and governing authority in your life. Let me show you this from Romans chapter 7, the previous chapter, in which we see both of these laws talked about in the same verse. Paul says this in Romans chapter 7, verse 22 and 23. He says, for I delight in the law of God. That's one kind of law. That's the moral code. That's the Mosaic law. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Here's what he's saying. He's saying that there is two laws going on, that even as he is seeking to keep God's law, follow the Ten Commandments, obey God's law, there is another law, and this is a law that is a ruling authority that is at work in his life. It is called indwelling sin. And that sin is a ruling principle in his life that causes him havoc. And actually, that second law keeps him from being able to keep the first law. So we have two ways in which Paul talks about the law. What is the, which way is he talking about here? Well, the law of sin and death is referring to the law as being an authoritative governing principle and power in your life. That is a thing that rules you. The law of sin and death refers specifically to a principle and power, a governing authority that moves and directs your heart towards that which is evil and therefore leads to death. And later on in verses 13, I believe, in Romans chapter 8, it actually says, we didn't read this, but it actually says that before you come to know the Lord, before you're set free and regenerated by God's Spirit, you can't do anything but sin because of this ruling authority in your life. Now, that law, the law of sin and death, is counteracted in our conversion by the law of the spirit of life. Now, what is that? What is the law of the spirit of life? Well, it's, Paul's talking about it in the same exact way. The law of the spirit of life doesn't mean that there's a new necessarily moral code that has come into your life. It's saying that there's now a new ruling authority You see, what we're seeing in Romans chapter 8 verses 1 through 4 is that God in the gospel has given us an answer in Christ Jesus for sin's penalty. There is therefore now no condemnation. But we also see in the gospel that when he sends us his spirit, we don't just simply have an answer for sin's penalty, we also have an answer for sin's power in our life so that we are set free from the ruling power of sin in our life. God sends his own son to be an offering for us, to bear our condemnation, so that you get a new verdict, no condemnation in Christ Jesus, and that is a permanent verdict. But then in verses 2 and 4, what we see is the Spirit sets you free from sin's ruling power, so that now, for the first time in your life, you can truly and rightly obey The Spirit exercises authority. He is the primary and the more powerful dominion in your life. No sin is greater than the the law of the Spirit. No temptation is greater than the Spirit who is within you. The Spirit exercises a more powerful rule in our life that ultimately leads to change in your life. So let me summarize the good news of Romans chapter 1 through 4. It's this. That we are justified. That God declares you righteous. That Jesus has dealt with our record of sin. But also in verses 1, 2, and 4, we see that God comes and sanctifies us by his spirit. He not just declares us righteous, but he makes you righteous. Dealing with sin's rule in your life. Not just the record of sin, the rule of sin. And therefore, this leads to the third thing I want to point out from verses 1 through 4. And that is this. This is verse 4. That we are therefore now set free to obey. For the first time in your life, you are set free to obey once you have been saved. We are set free not so that we might sin with impunity, Not so that we can say, well, I have freedom in Christ, therefore I can do whatever idiotic thing I want to do. I can reject God's law. I can reject what he says. No, that's not what freedom in Christ means. Freedom in Christ means you have now been set free so that finally you're able to obey. What is the goal of being both forgiven and being set free from the power of sin? What does it say in verse four? Look at it. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. What is the goal of being forgiven and set free? So that you might obey the law. God wants us to keep His law. Now, this is really important. I mean, just as a, as a note and aside. Because there is, a, there is an era, there is a, a view of teaching, and particularly, you, some of you may have heard this past year that Andy Stanley got up and re- wrote in a book that said that we don't necessarily need to pay attention to the Old Testament anymore. And we, we can ignore the moral code, the Ten Commandments. But what law is Paul talking about in Romans 8? What law is he talking about? He's talking about the Mosaic law. He's talking about the Ten Commandments. Don't ever get the idea that when we say we are not under law anymore, that that doesn't mean you shouldn't keep God's law. God wants us to keep his law. To love him with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then to love your neighbor as himself, that is the heart of the law. Has that changed? Absolutely not. But instead, what we have now, you are now empowered and able to keep the law by the Spirit's power in your life. Here's where I want to get to why this is such good news for new life for you. Because this is what this means. That there is no addiction, there is no pattern of living or behavior in your life that is too great for the Spirit of God to set you free from. It means this, that if you're a young man and you struggle with a porn addiction, that the evil one who would come and say to you, you have to give in to these cravings. that you look at him and you say, absolutely, that is a lie from the pit of hell and it smells my spoke because I have the spirit of God in me and he has set me free. You don't have to spend yourself into oblivion. You don't have to eat every single carb your eyes lay eye, you lay our eyes on. You don't have to give yourself over to self-loathing, into anger, and to covetousness. Don't ever let him tell you that. That's a lie. You've been set free from that old power. You know, there's an old fable, and is a fable. There is no not any good necessarily historicity behind this, but it's a fable that Augustine wrote, kind of made from his own life, and he gives this example of this kind of the kind of perspective that we could have. Augustine, some of you may know this that Augustine was an incredibly promiscuous young man before he came to know the Lord. St. Augustine, he had many, many lovers, he uh, orgies, all the whole gamut he ran. But when he became a Christian, God liberated St. Augustine from his bondage to promiscuity. And the tale goes that one day, while he was visiting an old city that he used to dwell and had many lovers in and kind of many, uh, uh, you know, whatever, e- evenings with, with, with these former lovers, he was walking to the city and a prostitute that he used to know approached him and began calling out his name and calling out to him saying, Augustine, Augustine, Augustine. And Augustine just kept walking past, ignoring her call. Finally, she stands up and she says, Augustine, it is I. And he turns as the fable goes, and he turns and says, yes, but it is not I. That there was a new life. That, there was a, that, was, that former self, that old man, no longer ruled and reigned in Augustine's life. There was a new spirit within him, a new life that directed him. Now, the historicity of that fable is questionable, but the principal truth is this, that when we become a Christian, you are now a completely different person. We are changed and transformed because there is a new king in town. There is a new power at work within you. So here's what I want you to know. If you're sitting here this morning and you messed up again yesterday or this week and you've walked in here in despair and defeat and feeling as if you were in bondage and you think you can never change, I want you to have hope that the Holy Spirit is available to you through faith in Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit when he comes down upon you in his baptism and lives inside of you has come to transform your life and guess what, nothing can stop him. Nothing can stop him. You have a new relationship to sin. Its power over us is broken. If you are in Christ, sin no longer rules you. Now, let me give you a real quick pastoral point here, because some have taken this and actually created a whole doctrine around it. Would then believe that we don't ever, we won't ever actually sin. But this, but this, this guarantee here is a guarantee change, but not a guaranteed instant and comprehensive change. You get the difference. There is a guaranteed ultimate change that this will bring into your life, but it is not instant and it is not necessarily comprehensive in this lifetime until Christ returns. Otherwise, why would Paul tell us to walk in the Spirit? Why would Paul tell us to put to death the deeds of the flesh if we suddenly and automatically and consistently found ourselves obeying God in every single area of our life? He wouldn't need to say it. And you may have bumped into some sort of teaching that says this, if you do X, Y, and Z, then you'll live a perfected life. That's simply not true. There are no silver bullets in the Christian life. The silver bullet is Jesus and his Holy Spirit applied to you over his time in such a way that he perfects you in glory to come. But I want to say this, not because I want to discourage you with a holiness pessimism, as if, oh, I'm just never going to change. No. There's guaranteed change, ultimately, because I want you to know what to expect. That when the Holy Spirit enters your life, it is now just simply the beginning of the battle, not the end of the battle. There are now two indwelling powers in your life. One has the throne, one is the former king, and he thinks he should still rule and reign. And there is a war going on inside of you. But I want you to remember this, that verses 2 and 4 are built upon verse 1. That without verse 1, you don't have verse 2. That without no condemnation, if for, if for the, there is no, you have no power over any sins that have not first been forgiven. And that is the hope that you have. That even as someone who's seeking to bring your life more and more under the control and power of the Holy Spirit, who's probably trying to submit yourself to him, and you long to see change, there is hope for you. Why? It's not going to be crushed because God has already put all sins, both past and present, to the cross. So there is hope for you both yesterday and today and for your future. So that's the first thing I want you to see this morning. There's new life because there's a new power. There's a new freedom in you. Now Paul 10 takes verses five through 13, which I did not read for you and we'll actually focus on next week and calls us to set our minds and hearts on the truth and power and goal of the Holy Spirit. Paul calls us to put to death, that is to the old theological term is to mortify, to put to death, our flesh, the things of this world, and said to give life, that is to vivify, to give life, to encourage, to feed the things of the Spirit in our life. And that is the battle of the Christian life, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And these two powers and these two kings try to claim authority on your life and are now at war within you. And there are two voices within you now screaming for your attention. And so Paul tells us that in this new life, not only has he given us a new power, but he now gives us a new voice of motivation that is the voice of the Spirit calling us and motivating us by confirming to us our sonship. This is the second thing I want you to see. The Spirit is now giving us a new motivation. He is motivating you. Look at verses 15 and 16 of Romans chapter 8 says this, For you do not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we indeed are children of God. How does the Spirit give you new life? He gives you new power, but he also tells you and confirms for you your new identity. He motivates you towards obedience, towards obedience and and calls you to a new life by reassuring you and motivating you with this truth about your sonship in Jesus Christ. When the Spirit comes to dwell within you, you get this new motivating power, a new motivating voice. And this voice is a voice of affection, and a voice of assurance, and a voice of security, not a voice of fear. Not a voice of fear. The evil one, the world, the voice that the evil one would seek to use, and frankly, the voice that you might use on yourself, the voice when you speak to yourself, I don't mean preach to yourself, when the internal you speaks to yourself, it speaks a voice of fear. Fear. When the evil one speaks a voice to you, his voice is one of fear. If you can imagine kind of a manipulator, sadistic sergeant, drill sergeant, or a football coach who is taking on his power over 16-year-olds a little bit too far. Who screams at you, who lies to you, who manipulates you, who threatens you. This is the manipulative friend who says, you're going to miss out. You won't have my company anymore. You will be rejected if you don't live in this particular way. This is the motivating voice of the flesh. It uses fear. But the voice of the Spirit shapes our wills and shapes our desires by motivating us towards obedience. obedience by doing what? By speaking to us and affirming to us the voice of the Father's love for us. Over and over again, the Spirit is, in fact, not just trickled into our hearts. It's as he's poured in two places In Galatians and in Romans, Paul talks about this. He says this in Galatians 4, verses 5 and 6. For Christ redeemed those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth his spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. He is there to confirm to you every single day that you are God's child. Romans chapter 5, verse 5. The only other time in which the spirit is talked about before Romans 8 in the book of Romans. It says this, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The spirit is the pouring of God's love into your life to tell you who you are this is something that happens in Christians the love of God God's love for his children is poured into our hearts that is the spirit of adoption making a real to us the love of God our father convincing us so that we know how loved we are now what do you get in adoption as sons what does he come to affirm in us well, just think about some of the things. He talks about it in verse 16. We become heirs. We get an inheritance. The Spirit motivates us. He says, listen, move towards the voice of the Spirit, towards the mind, set your mind on the things of the Spirit because there you're thinking about and hoping in your future inheritance as sons. Reject the things of the world because you have a heavenly inheritance that is coming. We get intimacy with the Father, don't we? We get to cry out, Abba, Father. The witness of the Holy Spirit says that you're a child of God And he says that he has come and cries out within our hearts, Abba, Father. And the reason that Paul uses the word cry, and then he uses the Aramaic word Abba, is because both of them point to a deep, affectionate, emotional, personal, authentic experience of God's fatherly love. We're not simply talking about here simply affirming that God is my Father. We're talking about the experience of it existentially in your life. That the Spirit comes to testify to you so that you know and you experience the hug of God's. And so that you get to come into God's room at two o'clock in the morning and say, Daddy, the word Abba, Abba Father, intimacy. Who gets to walk into the king's bedroom and wake him up? We do. Only his children. And you get to do that, and we get security. Our relationship with God is characterized by our security, that our relationship with him is never at risk. You don't ever lose your standing as a child. It never goes away. And it's not based on your performance. Praise Jesus. There is nothing you can do that will ever cause God to love you any more or any less. Now, yes, there are times when he's more or less pleased with you. But his love for you never wavers. And the Spirit bears witness to our spirit. We saw this when we look back at at John chapter 14. It says that Jesus says, I'm going to send to you an advocate, a helper, a counselor, a comforter. And what is he going to say? He is going to convince our hearts that we are forgiven, that we are accepted sons of God. The Spirit is given to us so that time and time again, the Spirit can remind you that you belong to God the Father. So may I ask you this, which voice are you listening to? I had a friend who had a daughter who got in a car wreck on her way to school, and it was her fault. She, had done, she hadn't been paying attention, of course, was on her phone, and ran into somebody, and she actually took a picture of her car wreck and posted it on Instagram. And one of her friends saw it at school, and she's like, oh my goodness, are you insane? Isn't your dad going to kill you for doing that? And she said, no, he already knows My dad was the first one I called. I wanted him to know right away about what I'd done. Some of you may have seen this meme. It's a meme, but it doesn't mean it's not true. The voice of fear says this. I messed up. My dad is going to kill me. The voice of the Spirit says, I messed up. I need to call my dad. And that's what you have. In Christ Jesus, that's what the Spirit pursues you with. That voice, that means that the Spirit is convincing and motivating you with this truth so that when you're faced with sin, do I go this way or do I go this way? And the Spirit comes to you in that moment. He says, listen, choose life. Set your mind on the things of life. Because you, are the fa- you are, choose the Father. Run towards his love and affection. Worship him with your life. He is good. He is close. He will never leave you or forsake you. Choose his way. Even if you don't perfectly obey him, guess what? He'll never leave you. And you go, oh man, that's the life I want to live. This is how your life gets radically transformed. Because of the new affection that you're convinced of that God has for you. And that your heart has for the Father. So, in the first half of Romans chapter 8... The spirit deals with our sin. The fact that we need sin's power engaged in our life and removed, and we need a new power in our life, a freedom from the old, old way, and we need a new way. We also see he again gives us the voice, the motivation that we need to fight sin today and throughout our lives. But we also, there's two things that Romans 8 is trying to address, not just our sin, but also addressing our suffering so there's two things that we really struggle with in this life. And what we didn't read in Romans chapter 8, verses 18-25, is this section where Paul talks about this, is the fact that we in all of creation are groaning in this sin-saturated, broken world where suffering pervades every area of life. But the hope of the gospel, Paul says, is this. And the hope of the Christian faith is that this broken, corrupt, wrecked, and ruined world will be made new again. That the groaning will cease and that Jesus will return and make all things new. And we will step into our inheritance with him in our new bodies. And we will reign with Christ for all of eternity. But we don't have that today, do we? That's not today. That's someday. And so we, live, we must live with realistic expectations because we know that the truth of the world has fallen. And this is the playground of Satan. And that life is hard. And therefore we live in a state of groaning. But what has God provided for us in the state in our state of groaning? It says in verses 25 or 26 and 27, God has given us his Holy Spirit to minister to us in our groanings. This is the last thing I want you to see. We get new life because the Spirit is interceding for you. Verse 26, likewise, after talking about suffering, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. I got news for you. You're weak. And I don't just mean, I'm not simply talking about weak moments. I'm talking about like you live in a state of weakness. We are weak people. This includes our physical state, our emotional state, our anxiety, our worry, our fear, our doubt, our inabilities, our trials, our insecurities, our inadequacies. These are all weaknesses and we carry them with us throughout life. And we are living in this life with a limp Living in a fallen world as a fallen person is too much for any of us. And so the Holy Spirit needs to give us some help. Can I get some help down here? And God says, yeah. You know, one of the things that, that has been said about Christianity and religion in general is this, is that Christianity or religion is simply a crutch for a weak people. Well, here's the testimony of Scripture in regards to that statement. True. Guilty. Guilty. It is true. We don't just need a crutch. We don't, it's, they have underestimated it. We don't just need a crutch. We need a stretcher. By the way, everyone has a crutch that, to deal with their weaknesses. Everybody. There's always some way in which we try to compensate for the weaknesses or cope with a broken and fallen world. We compensate by try, trying to hoard power. And we're always afraid of losing power. We cope by relying on people. But people let us down, don't they? We sometimes, some cope with substances, anything, something to numb the sense of weakness and vulnerability we have in our life. But those substances never help us actually gain control in our life. Instead, all they do is end up controlling us. We are all weak, and we all have crutches. The question is, which which crutch do you have that won't crush you or shame you? And the crutch of the Holy Spirit the stretcher of the Holy Spirit, not only will he not crush you or shame you, but he comes to help you. He understands and knows your weaknesses, and he knows when you understands when you fail. The Holy Spirit comes to give care to you, and so he comes to help you in your weakness. He comes alongside us and sustains us in our fears. He leads us even as we limp along. And Jesus says that the spirit will live inside of us and that spirit inside of us will strengthen us. He'll calm our fears. He will lead us and he will guide us. And what is the way it says that he will most profoundly help you? He'll pray for you. It says in verse 26 and 27, Likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and He searches hearts. He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You ever experienced this? That in your suffering you have a hard time praying? I've been in rooms with people who are having that experience. In which the agonizing sound is simply, there are no words. The grief and the groaning is too deep to have words. It comes out like this. Oh. And we don't know what to say. And we don't know how to pray. And we can't form a coherent thought because life has crushed us. And it's in that moment, guess what? The Spirit is praying for you when you don't know what to say and when you don't know how to pray as you ought the Holy Spirit is praying for you have you had a situation in life that is so confusing and which you look at God and you say God I don't know the will, your will for my life I had this, this experience yesterday I'm sitting at a, at a light and I'm praying over a particular issue in our family and it is so complex and there's so many things that are tied in and I can't figure out if I'm wanting something because of my idolatry and because of my longing for comfort or if because I want something good for my family and for the kingdom of God I can't even read my own heart well and so what is my, what's my comfort in that moment? What does it say? How does the Spirit pray? I may not know the will of God. I can't even, may not be able to figure out my own heart. But guess what? In that moment, the Spirit of God knows what God's will is for me. And he knows me better than anybody else. The Spirit knows the will of God. The Holy Spirit prays for you. And he doesn't just pray for you like this. God help them. Amen. But he's phrased very specifically in light of God's perfect and good will for you. It really drives you, some of you crazy. I did this earlier on in this series where I read from John 3, 1 through 15. And I stopped before John 3, 16. I did it again today. I read through verses 8, 27. Andrew, eight it's got some good stuff in there. <laughs> and the Spirit prays. For our good, in other words, the Holy Spirit groans and cries out to the Father on your behalf. God works in response to our prayers, but the good news is that God's good work in your lives is not limited to ex- the extent that you're able to pray correctly. Do you know this? What if God only did what you and I had the wisdom and the imagination and the courage to pray for? Then we would miss out on a tons of blessings, wouldn't we? But God has done things in your life that you would never have thought to to ask for. They would be too painful. He's done things in your life that you would never have the courage to ask for. God has done things in your life that never crossed your mind. In fact, you asked for the opposites. And yet, the Holy Spirit, the reason why God gave you something totally different is because the Holy Spirit who dwells in you, who knows you intimately, you might think, listen, I've taken my my Myers-Briggs. I know what I am. I know what my Enneagram number is. But let me tell you something. The Holy Spirit knows who you are better than you do. And he knows where you're weak better than you do. And not only that, he knows the will of God better than you do. And so he prays for you according to who you are and what you need and what God's good will is for your life. And this is the beautiful truth. The Holy Spirit is more committed to your joy and to your growth and to your goodness than you are. Because you're so fickle, but he stays in line. You don't even know how to pray. He does. He does. Do you understand this? Some of you know that Jesus is your intercessor, that he's the great high priest who's entered into heaven, and he has done that, right? We have two intercessors, though. Jesus is standing at the right hand of the Father, pleading on your behalf, saying, they are mine, Father. Their sins are paid for. They are righteous. You have given them to me. I have purchased their salvation. My wounds, have. I, I plead for their acceptance and their forgiveness. Accept them, hear them. But you also have this. You have an intercessor who lives in you, the Holy Spirit, so that you never have to be undone with your suffering. The Holy Spirit is interceding for us when we suffer, when we have no words, when we are confused by life. And God listens to the prayers of the Holy Spirit and provides us the very thing that we most need in a difficult season of life. And so I conclude this morning by looking at this. I want you to see that God, in his baptism of the Holy Spirit, has given you a life-changing power. And what is the very core of our baptism of the Holy Spirit is this fact that the Holy Spirit has come to be present with you. Some of you may be familiar with this passage. It's called Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He lead me, leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. But do you know this? Have you ever noticed this about Psalm 23 that there is a shift in the language in verse four. In verse four, he says what? In verse four, he says, even though I walk to the valley of the shadow of death, what is he talking about? Even though I walk through a season of suffering, I will fear no evil for what? You are with me. What happened in verse four? He went from referring to God as a he, 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 to suddenly it becomes very personal. You are with me. You are with me. You are in my presence. Sometimes God never becomes personal to you until you are walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And for many of you, your testimony in your life is that God was a he out there somewhere until I went through deep suffering and suddenly he is a you. He is personal to me. And remember, the spirit is personal. He's not an it. He's a person. And this is the promise of the scriptures, right? Psalm 34, 18. God is near to the brokenhearted. You see, the indwelling the baptism of the Holy Spirit means you have the very presence of God and his glory upon you. And he comes to be with you in your suffering and to fight with you in your sin. Let me close with this. When your kids, when your kids come into your room at 2 a.m. and they're scared, this happens a lot in my household, you have a couple options, don't you? Some of you have done this. You can yell at your kid, Right? You can be like, go back to bed. We have a book that we read a lot of times in our house. It's called Get Back to Bed, Ed, in which the parents just yell at the kid, Back to bed, Ed. You can do that. What are you using? You're saying, Listen, you're scared of your bad dream. Well, let me tell you something. I can give you something to be afraid of. <laughs> you can use a greater fear, or you can rationalize with them, right? That's always effective at two in the morning. Listen, honey, we have ADP, we have Simply Safe, daddy's got a gun, it's all okay. We have state-of-the-art locks. You can try to address the irrationality of their fears. Monsters don't exist. That was made up in the movies. You can give them a pep talk, right? That's always helpful. Listen, I need you to, you're going you to have to be courageous. This is about boldness. Two in the morning. So effective. But in the middle of the night, what soothes your child in the midst of their fear? It's when you, what? You bring that child up into your arms and you walk them back across the house and you say daddy's here with you you have my presence and guess what daddy's going nowhere and when you experience the presence of god and his spirit you don't just get to go back to sleep it changes your entire life it's the good news of the spirit let's pray Lord, we, I know for me that, that this, this truth and this idea of fighting sin and seeking life change by preaching to myself these truths, I took it on and I, as just kind of a mantra, like a voodoo mantra I can say over my life in the, in the midst of immediate temptation. And Lord, that, that is nice to remember. But Lord, just as with my children, to the degree that I look at my kids who are thinking about obeying, saying your dad loves you, will you please obey, the degree that that is compelling to them is the degree that they have been convinced of their father's love for them. And so Lord, we need more than mantras we repeat to ourselves in a moment of temptation. We need you to come convince our hearts that you love us. And that you want good things for us. And that we, despite our weakness, that you have empowered us by your spirit. And that you're here to help us. And that when we don't know how to pray, you're there interceding for us. And that we have your very presence. Convince us of that truth, Lord. So that we might be prepared and able to face whatever temptation to seek with gusto a change of life that gives glory and honor to you and that radically changes our lives and the lives of everyone around us. Oh, gracious God, would you come and press that truth upon us? We ask in the precious name of your son, Jesus. Amen.